The Worker Learner Podcast is brought to you by the Professional Learning Hub, Griffith University's platform for executive and professional education. Bringing together the expertise of Griffith University's academics and research centres, our professional learning is designed to deliver creative solutions for the workplace of tomorrow. Whether you are looking for opportunities for yourself or your team, we have you covered. Hi, I'm Dr. Johanna Nalau and I am your host for this episode. I'm an adaptation scientist who is profoundly curious about the human nature and its ability to adapt as we navigate often through quite challenging decisions. I specialize in uncovering specific rules of thumb or what we call heuristics that we have often developed over time to guide us in, in making better decisions. In my day-to-day research, I specifically focus on adaptation heuristics, on how we can, could or should adapt to the impacts of climate change. And most recently, I worked on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Six Assessment Report. But heuristics exist in all walks of life. And while they drive our decision-making, we often need to stop and reflect in order to actually identify them. In these interviews with a range of professionals, I hope to uncover new rules of thumb that could be helpful for others in how we can make better decisions and keep moving forward. My guest today is author, restauranter and festival director, Janet Deneuve. Originally from Melbourne, Janet Deneuve moved to Bali 30 years ago for love. From making a life in another country to running really successful businesses, then to creating the Ubud Writers and Readers Festival in response to the 2002 Bali bombings, and now being a leading figure in Bali's tourism industry as it emerges from the ravages of the pandemic. I think it's fair to say that Janet has seen and responded to to quite big changes in her life. I'm really curious as to how has she approached periods of these, you know, drastic changes and what rules of thumb have driven her decision making? How has she adapted to changing circumstances and and specifically what keeps her moving forward? Welcome, Jeanette. Thank you, Joanna. <laughs> so, Janet, for our listeners who they might not be familiar uh, with your story, could you tell us a little bit how you came to be living and, and working in Bali? In Bali, yeah. Well, um, I should probably start with my dad who brought us to Bali in 1975 on a family holiday. You know, he had a bit of extra cash in his pocket that, as I always say, he didn't want to tell the government about. So he decided to... Uh, take us on an adventure so uh, we came uh, just after Christmas so 75 summer uh, landed on the shores of Bali when the airport was like a school building and um, I guess that first visit really changed my life actually so yeah we traveled around a bit and then back to Melbourne and then I finished school etc but of course uh, Bali uh, never left my mind it was it sort of became part of my uh, whole being in a way. So I came back to Bali in 1984 after finishing, yes, school and uh, working for a bit, etc. I met my husband the second day. So um, again, another event that changed the path of my life, etc. And yeah, opened a whole new chapter. So um, I decided I wanted 
Bali to be, yeah, my new home. And uh, slowly over the next few years, um, I was sort of moving across. And then in 1989, we were married. And that's when I permanently moved here full time. Well, that's quite a <laughs> quite a change. Um, yes. So, how did you how did you adapt to your new country and new life in Bali? I mean, that's that's quite a big shift in, in you know in terms of coming coming from mm-hmm. from Australia from from Melbourne. Mm-hmm. I think um, one of the key points was that I was young. Uh, I don't think, you know, when you're older, I don't think you really want to have to adapt to new ways. Yeah, but when you're young and you're enamored with this place that's so beautiful and the people are so friendly and there's such a beautiful community spirit and, you know, family life. I mean, it was like a dream, you know. Um, so I think when you're young, you just want to kind of be pliable and mould into that sort of way of life. So I was just happy to do whatever I had to just to to fit in, you know, because I was so excited. Um, yeah, and then, uh, you know, I mean, of course, you have to learn learn things on the way, but I knew that that was character building. I knew that at the end of it, I was going to be, um, as they say, a better version of me. Um, so it was all for a good cause because I thought I'm going to come out of this uh, – with this extra layer um, of character, like um, dual personality, but, you know, uh, living on in the East and the West and seeing mm-hmm. how each side lives. So I, I kind of decided that I had to enjoy the journey. It's part of the process. And uh, in a place like this, um, it can only have a really positive effect on your your character, on who you are. That's beautiful, is it? And, and, and so, so how how did you start making making a living? You know, having having, you know, come out of school yeah, and, and moving. I never had any money. <laughs> um, I think my original idea, because my background was art, I sort of thought, oh my god, I can be like a a, a Bali Gogan. You know, I'm going to paint. I'm going to be creative and draw, and I'm you know that's going to be my livelihood. That's what I thought at the time. But I also was really fascinated with the cuisine, so. When I came back in 84, my project was to study the food um, after my first visit, you know, from eating frog's legs and gado gado and things like that. I was intrigued because I'd never tasted anything like it. So my my kind of day job also was to research the food. And because my background was in te- um, teaching, yeah, the, the next progression anyway was I knew that I would uh, ultimately teach the cooking because... Ubud always felt like a university town. So I had these two skills, you know, art, food, teaching. Um, but by chance, in 1987, uh, we opened a restaurant. Uh, there was a little restaurant near my husband's friend's place, and the guy running it was a hopeless gambler, so, you know, he went bankrupt. So he, he had to step out of the restaurant. So so my husband's friend said, do you want to take over this restaurant together? And he said, yeah, sure, why not? So suddenly, uh, and I was around, and I'm like, restaurant. It was like, oh, my God, that's like one of my dreams, you know. So uh, in 1987, we opened our first restaurant in Monkey Forest Road. uh, And it was, you know, successful from the minute we opened the doors because I, as a traveller, I knew what people wanted to eat. I mean, I sort of felt a bit guilty in a way that I had this unfair advantage. But, you know, I guess the way you deal with that is you employ people and, um, teach them as well, you know, and upgrade their skills, etc. So, 
um, yeah, so we started this restaurant. It was only small, um, but it was hilarious. It was like, you know, faulty towers um, in the tropics. Uh, and I learned so much about um, dealing with the people in terms of, a, you know, being the boss and, um, yeah, just how to uh, use the ingredients and create interesting food. The kitchen was like the size of a matchbox, seriously. Um, but we had great food, and then I bought a little Dutch oven, which is like a little aluminium box that you sit on a little gas burner, and that was my oven, and we made, you know, apple crumble and beautiful cakes and things like that, uh, and we started to make bread, etc. so, you know, and that later developed into Honeymoon Bakery, so they're all kind of, uh, yeah, basic skills, you know, I saw that as my um, apprenticeship, you know, um, my culinary education, and uh, yeah, it was a fascinating journey. And in those early days, what were some of the some of the you know the big challenges for you, and, and also how did you overcome them? I just I, I think to one way I learned to deal with everything, you know, because I'd think about it a lot, and then I think, oh, actually, that's a cultural difference, you know, because you know the east and the west are different, and just about everything we do is opposite to the way they do it here. So I started to realize. You know, at first when you think, oh, that's so annoying, and then you think later, oh, no, that's a cultural difference. Um, so then you can understand it because they're cultural differences, you know. Nobody's right or wrong. It's just they do it that way, we do it this way. So then I started to kind of enjoy that, you know, just everything I thought about, I thought, oh, that's a cultural difference. So that kind of helped me uh, understand and blend in, I suppose, Um and I'm pretty flexible, you know. I mean, I, you know, um, I'm pretty easy to go with the flow anyway. And, um, you know, there was a dress code that's not really, you don't have to follow that anymore. But, uh, you know, ideally you, you'd cover your shoulders, you know, you, you absolutely couldn't wear anything above your knee back then. You had to be um, kind of, yeah, wearing the right clothing, the right attitude, Um and you just sort of learnt that as you went along, and uh, I didn't mind because I thought, oh yeah, it's okay, no problem. So uh, <laughs> you can see I'm not really um, one to stand up and <laughs> de defy things. But um, yeah, as I said, it was part of the journey, so I thought it's okay. I'm enjoying it, so and I'm here, so what's not to love, you know? Um, we know that into you know. In 2002, then there were the, um, the horrific bombings in Bali, and it was definitely obviously an event that rocked Bali, but also uh, to Australia. So I'm really interested in your response because I would out of out of this really strategic um, event, you came, you created the Ubud Writers and, and Readers Festival. So do, do you remember the moment when when you decided to start the festival? Was it an idea that you had before? Was it was it a new idea mm. that kind of unfolded unfolded in in that moment? Because um, you know we all we all have these ideas and and mm -hmm. you know we don't always act upon them. So I'm really interested in, in hearing hearing your kind of where you got your your ideas and inspiration. I mean, first of all, I have too many ideas, so uh, this is my <laughs> dilemma. Uh, well, actually, around the time of the Bali bombings, um, I was finishing off my first book, Fragrant Rice, which was, for me, ultimately a cookbook, but it became a memoir 
because uh, for me, food is a story, you know, it's about storytelling anyway. So, um, and the publisher said, this is, yeah, this is a memoir. So I was in the last stages of finishing uh, Fragrant Rice. So I was already uh, moving in literary circles in a way because I was being invited to writers' festivals. I'd started communicating with festival directors like Jill Eddington in Byron Bay, who was an absolute angel throughout the whole process. Uh, and I was talking to a friend in Ubud because um, literature was my other great passion. So we were talking about having, you know, poetry readings at Casa Luna or sort of literary events anyway at Casa Luna, you know, because my background really now um, is events, you know, everything I do now is about events. Um, and I was already like that. So, uh, yeah, so yeah, I was in the last stages of the, the book uh, connecting with festivals, directors, everything like that. So things were starting to, you know, tick in my head. And then when the bombings came, um, you know, I sort of thought about, okay, how are we going to survive this? Um, there's no government support. Nobody really likes us anymore because they kind of blame us for it. So we're kind of, we're kind of on our own and there's nobody here. So we're empty, like totally empty, which luckily only lasted six months not two years uh, so I started to think how did how do you survive and then I think the the most um, unpleasant message amongst all of that was we rely 100% on tourism like we do right now so I thought how do you attract people to come back and I thought well the way you attract people to come back is well first through money through cheap deals but the second thing is through public figures, famous people. So I thought, okay, we I have to create an event that brings famous people back to Bali and they're going to go straight to Ubud. <laughs> uh, so then I thought, what sort of famous people? So I thought, well, I'm not really interested in a music festival. It's not kind of my thing, but also I thought right now, I think that's not kind of what we need. We need a festival with a cause. Uh, that's going to have really a powerful, um, or yeah, it's going to be meaningful, a powerful message. It's going to be right for this moment. So then I thought, writing, hello, <laughs> that's an obvious one. Because, I, you know, as I always say, the pen is mightier than the sword because I thought we have to have an event that deals with, with terrorism, you know, tragedy, something that really um, affects people deeply. And I thought, well, literature, I mean, that's the way you deal with that the written word. So, um, and of course it linked with the fact that I was already in publishing in a way or being a published author. So, yep, I talked to this friend, Helen Corner, who was helping me and uh, we thought, yep, let's do it. And, and in those early days when, you know, when you were you know, de developing the ideas and thinking about the collaboration and context and everyone you need and, and how to kind of frame yeah. frame the festival. Were yeah. there some yeah. were the particular challenges that or moments where where you felt stuck? <laughs> I think I felt stuck from the first day. <laughs> I really it was you know it was something of a, a huge scope you know that. Um, uh, yeah, luckily my friend assisted me because she knew how to apply for grants and things like that. So I, it was, I was learning on the spot as well, you know, um, 
because yeah, I, I can run any restaurant event, but this was something a bit, a bit greater than that. But at the same time, I thought, hey, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes, but it doesn't matter. The most important thing right now is you do it, and you learn as you go along. I don't, I don't care about making mistakes. I call it all um, a learning experience. Um, even I say that to my team, don't call it a mistake. It's a learning experience. So um, it's kind of how you survive it all because we we were just kind of throwing everything together. But I thought it doesn't matter because everybody was so optimistic about this event, you know, like publisher friends in Australia were jumping up and down for joy, like yippee, you know. Um, so there was so much support, which we still get, you know. Um, so we just thought, yeah, just do it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was exhausting. I think the first year I was just at the end of it all. I'm like, damn, that was exhausting. And then I thought, but I'm not going to give up. Even if Jeanette goes with the flow and has lots of, lots of ideas, when she decides on something, she does indeed have a strategy or a tactic. One of her key rules of thumb is to distill problems into manageable questions to figure out what to actually do. The key question driving Janet during this time was, how do we survive? How do we shift when the main source of income is cut off? How do we start rebuilding, not in the same way as before, but through new initiatives that provide a new direction towards something that can become then the next big thing? What are those connections that we need to make? Who are the people to find? And what is the essence of that new direction? This is really a heuristic that can help us to adapt when faced with uncertainty, when faced with a sudden event that forces us to rethink how everything works. Nifi, you mentioned the, the, the pandemic pandemic there there as well and then and that Bali's tourism industry as, as a lot of the kind of you know tropical island countries are really um you know dependent on tourism and obviously with mm -hmm. the pandemic you know we've got the home stay-at-home lockdowns um and, and yeah, tourism has, yeah. has really almost disappeared in, in many places so could you describe it a bit yeah. how hard has it been you know being in an industry that's really tourism dependent in the last few years yeah, well, I mean, uh, yeah, it's been pretty awful. <laughs> I can't say it's been fun. Um, yeah, it's been horrific. But, I mean, there's been many positives as well. But I honestly don't know how your average family has survived, you know. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, we all, all of us in business have tried to keep staff on in some way. Um, I, you know, I don't know anybody who, in business here who's not tried to look after people. And then, of course, there have been some fantastic fundraising initiatives and um, our friend Janur, who has the plastic exchange. So for people, um, they, if they collect plastic, they get rice in exchange, things like that. So there's been so many incredible positive outcomes of this. Um, and I guess like like everywhere, you just have to patiently wait. So... Um, you know, now that Bali's slowly opening, um, we're all excited, but we also have to be ready for that. I certainly have to, you know, check all my hotel rooms now and, you know, repaint, yeah. re repair, like do all those things, which of course costs money. So um, it's going to be a while before we're actually, um, we have a surplus to do other things. And so, yeah, um, 
Yeah, we closed the hotel here and we closed uh, Indus, our other restaurant. We kept Casa Luna open. I just refused to close that no matter what. Um, yeah, I'm really stubborn. Uh, but also because during the pandemic, what helped us survive was our bakery, our bakery items. What else did we do? And then for me personally, um, in the first year, it was kind of that sense that, um, okay, it's it's quiet, but maybe it's time to do other things that we've never had time to do. It's almost like, yeah, mm. God was saying, okay, catch up with your other projects. Um, so one of them was for me was to make a YouTube series. So I finally got that off the ground by the end of the year. So because um, I'm kind of crazy about village venues, you know, little village eateries and stuff like that. So um, with one of the really cool filmmakers on the island, an Indonesian guy, we went to about 13 little eateries, you know, warungs and um, um, coconut plantations and all sorts of places like that um, and made a little YouTube series. So that's that's something that was very exciting. We actually did do... Um, a writers' festival in October, we, we, but we rebranded it and called it Kambali Twenty Twenty. Kambali means to return, and it was this idea that we were doing it all online. And so, while people couldn't come to Bali, we were bringing Bali back to them. So, we combined the food festival with the writers' festival in Twenty Twenty, um, which was hugely successful actually, because I think then Zoom was quite new. People were excited, you know, um, whole new experience. Uh, it was more successful than this this year or last year because by last year I think people had Zoom fatigue, right? Yeah. They were a bit like, oh, my God, not again. Um, but, yeah, so that was 2020. So we, we still had projects that helped us survive and I had my own personal projects and uh, I think beyond that, <clears throat> excuse me, I was enjoying just uh, having the family at home. It was the first time in so many years that we'd actually be sitting at the dinner table together enjoying dinner that was um for me one of that'll remain one of the most um yeah lovely memories just dinners together lunches together and birthdays together at home that is such a such a <laughs> you know such a such a yeah. lovely insight because i think that's you know we often look at these challenges and and this really yeah. you know trying mm -hmm. circumstances and forget to enjoy those you know those little little things that we yeah. haven't actually had time for. Um, yeah, totally. Mm. I was going to ask, if, I mean, you are a multi-entrepreneur. You, <laughs> you have so many ideas and so many businesses ongoing. And so mm. how, how do you, because in, in my line of work, we think about adaptation yeah. to climate change. So we also look at these kind of livelihood yeah. diversification. So people are actually you know, having multiple livelihoods. I'm really interested in, like, how do, how do you make decisions where to invest most of your energy um, with yeah, the, all, these, all these initiatives? <laughs> oh, well, I think uh, you, you just know what is worth investing in at the end of the day, don't you, um, and what's possible. Uh, yeah, because I have so many things I want to achieve, but... Yeah, it's just like, oh, damn, I don't know if I can do that right now. So, I mean, <laughs> the key is to have people around you that can help you achieve these thing, that, things, that's all. Um, and that's why it's easier for me to move ahead with the festivals, etc., because I have a really strong team. 
some of the other th things I'm trying to pull together, I'm doing it almost on my own. So I know that that's going to make it a slow burner. Um, so I think ultimately you always know what's, um, what's worth it in a way. Um, I'm not driven by money. So usually it's, uh, something that has, um, the greatest, uh, social cause or something that benefits the community or the people as a whole. Um, you know, like the writers festival, because it's, it's just such a huge gathering. It's, um, the bringing together of so many different sorts of people, you know, from all over the world, from different cultures, etc. So I think uh, you tend to go with what excites you the most, but also what benefits the most people. Mm. And also what you, what you can get the most support for financially. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so you describe yourself as being somebody who's really flexible, um, you know, just kind of keeps going. Um, what does the word, for instance, adaptation mean to you? Do you see yourself as a oh, yeah. person that easily adapts or are there particular things where where you found that you actually can't do that? Uh, I think I'm really adaptable and I think I'm really flexible. Um, that's me saying that, you know. I mean, there's some things I'm really serious about. You're like, no, you can't change that. That's not going to change, you know, some things. But I, but I know, but in those cases, I know I'm right, you know. And that's, I think that's one thing you have to realise too when you're running these sorts of things. At some point, you're still driving the bus and you still have to make really clear decisions. Um, yes, so some things I'm really, that's not going to change, okay, that's the way it's done. Um, other things I'm kind of like go with the flow, as I said, because I see uh, everything's an experiment. So I don't mind trying something different Um just to see what the result's going to be, you know, if I'm not sure again, if it, if it is the right decision, sometimes I don't know, you know, so I think, okay, let's just experiment. No problem. Um, yeah. Oh, and so I what? think I'm very adaptable, huh? you know? Yeah. And, and for, you know, mm -hmm. for other people who are listening to this podcast, who might feel stuck in their ways and would like to be a more adaptable. Do you have any, um, any key advice or anything that you find in your own life that actually, you know, has really, really helped you? Well, I think, uh, I guess to me, one of the most important things is not to take you, not to take yourself too seriously. Uh, I find that, you know, when I go back to Australia, it's like, don't take yourself so seriously. Come on, you know, learn to laugh, you know, learn just to roll with the punches, learn to be more Australian. I'm sort of worried that Australians might not be as Australian as they should be or, you know, I love the character of Australians, you know, be like that, you know, chilled and yes, you'll be right, mate. So just, um, yeah, a lot of it's about the ego, actually. You sort of need to bury your ego a little bit um, and just, yeah, just soften up a bit. Um, yeah, and don't take yourself too seriously. <laughs> That's you know, great. I mean, because for me, what helps, well, I, I, for me, humour is a huge part of my life, you know, um, painfully so to people who have to listen to my bad jokes. So uh, I couldn't survive without that. That's something I got from my dad, you know, this just insane sense of humour. So I think, um, yeah, when you see life from the funny side, um, it sort of helps you because <laughs> you have to laugh at a lot of things because otherwise you just don't know what to do, you know, otherwise you cry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, well, 
Those are amazingly inspirational stories. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> well, thanks so much for taking the time to chat, um, Chash. My pleasure. Um, Thank you. Thanks, Thank you very much. Bye, Joanna. Janet Deneuve certainly has the life experience of a serial adapter with so many insightful rules of thumb at her fingertips. Many of these she's developed through very challenging situations, but they have certainly kept her afloat. What strikes me as a key threat is her joy for life and her intense curiosity about what can be done when everything changes. I absolutely loved her heuristic about how we need to appreciate and cultivate humour as we navigate life. What she has also shown us is the rule of thumb of asking critical questions. We know from decision science that stopping and asking these questions often leads to new insights and opens up new opportunities. I really hope you find her insights valuable and can use some of these in your own professional life in how to make better decisions and keep moving forward. The Worker Learner Podcast was brought to you by the Professional Learning Hub, Griffith University's platform for executive and professional education.